Let's turn to Acts chapter 22. Now while we will read all of uh, this particular chapter, uh, we're going to pretty much focus our attention on maybe the first 23, 24 verses of this, uh, of this chapter. The uh, title itself we won't deal with until later. may not make any sense right now. It's okay. What does initially on a Sunday morning at this time? But we hope that it will make some sense when we get to a certain passage here in chapter 22. I'd like to just read for you verses four, verse 40 of the previous chapter, uh, verse uh, 40 of chapter 21, and then the first two verses of chapter 22, and then we will pray. Now, of course, Paul has uh, been taken as a prisoner, actually arrested because of a riot that took place in the court of the Gentiles where the Jews were actually wanting to kill Paul because uh, they assumed that Paul had taken a Gentile into the areas where Gentiles were not allowed in the temple. So this caused a tremendous uh, problem. Uh, And uh, so the Romans came in and rescued Paul and took him up some stairs into what was uh, the Antonia Fortress. And as they're doing that, Paul asks permission to speak, speaking in Greek to the commander. The commander thought he was an Egyptian who was uh, an assassin. Uh, But finally, when he hears Paul and realizes that he's a Roman citizen, uh, this is where we are at here in verse 40. Verse 40 says, So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs. Remember last week we said that Paul had taken the higher ground. Paul stood on the stairs and he motioned with his hands or with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Shall we pray? Father, our desire is to understand, Lord, your word this morning. Not only in the rehashing of of Paul's conversion and in the giving of his testimony as we will look at today, but Lord, to dig deeper into what will affect us personally in our daily lives as believers. And certainly, Lord God, it is our desire to take out from your word the richness of, of the spiritual applications that we need to, to uh, chew upon and, and uh, to take in heartily uh, into our lives. That the effect of these things, Lord God, will, will be seen in our Christian walk and in our Christian approach to our lives. We thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would anoint us with the Spirit to give us wisdom and understanding, to live out not only your word, but not, well, not only to, live, to understand it, but to live it out by faith. As we trust in you, Lord, for all things, this, of course, we ask always, in that precious name above all names, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. So the Apostle Paul now is well into his ministry in Jerusalem, and when we were with him last, as I mentioned before, the people that he had come to give testimony of Jesus Christ, his own Jewish brethren, had just tried to kill him. 
And having been rescued by the Roman guards who were just a stone's throw away in the Antonia fortress and taken up into their, uh, taken up into their barracks via stairs which were just outside the court of the Gentiles, Paul seizes the opportunity to take the higher ground geographically and morally and he pleads to speak to the people. Now the astonishing thing is, they let him. They let him speak to the people. A riot has just taken place. Confusion abounds. The commander can't get a a, a straight answer from anybody that he asks. And yet when Paul says, can I speak to everyone? They said, okay. Now, Now, we have to believe that with God's mighty help. And let's think about this. How can we do anything without God's mighty help? But with God's mighty help, this beaten and bloodied man in chains was able to get the crowd's attention with a wave of his hand. I mean, that is God intervening for his child and for his people. And the fact that Paul spoke in Hebrew also gave them reason to listen, realizing that he was a Jew and not a Gentile, but above all, the apostle was making a connection with the people. Now right away, we need to understand this. Paul was making a connection with the people. This was what he had prayed for nearly 20 years to have come to pass. To share Jesus Christ with the people who wanted him dead. It brings us back to that Statement that Paul makes in Romans 10 verse 1, Brethren, he says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Now here is true love for the lost. Here is true love that nothing is going to keep him from doing that which he believes God has indeed called him to do, which is to bring the gospel to Jerusalem and to his Jewish brethren. And so here Paul begins with his apologia, the Greek word for the word defense in verse 1. When Paul states there, brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. The word apologia does not have that sense of apology as we would understand it today. Because the word apologia very literally means it is the doctrinal defense of the faith. That is why it's translated as his defense. Not apology, but defense. And it is a doctrinal defense. And I mention that because some people think that throughout the book of Acts, there really isn't some concentration or or any uh, indication that, that there's a lot of doctrine in the book of Acts. Well, folks, from beginning to end, there has to be. Why? Because... The church had to stand on something. Aside from the fact that it had to stand upon the power of the Holy Spirit, which we see it from the very beginning, it had to stand on the truth of the gospel. That's doctrine. And throughout all of the book of Acts up to this point, we have seen a lot of doctrine that has been spoken of, that has been mentioned, that has been clarified as doctrine. Not in the teaching sense as we see in the letters of Paul and John and James and Jude but in a sense of knowing that there is doctrine here. And he gives this doctrinal defense of his faith 
by giving his testimony. And notice, if you will, in verse 3, he says, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our Father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, the way being the, the Jewish Christians. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. And now it happened. As I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. Can you imagine a light greater than the sun at noon? And I fell to the ground and I heard the voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. By the way, that last verse there, verse 9, is not a contradiction to something that we see in, in, in chapter 9, in chapter 9 where the initial uh, uh, conversion of Paul is given. Uh, it says that they heard the voice. But they didn't understand it. And that's really the understanding here. They, they, heard the voice. they did not hear the voice. In other words, they didn't hear what was being said. So it's not a contradiction. I just wanted to throw that in there. But when taking the higher ground, you see, as we talked about last week, taking the higher ground, it's, it's a military thing, but, but think about this. When, when taking the higher ground, there, there is a necessity to seize whatever you're taking. To seize it. The word seize literally means to take hold of, to grab hold of, to get hold of, to snatch, to grasp, or to clutch. In this case, Paul was seizing the opportunity to give his testimony in hopes that the Jews would see the power of the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, to change and to transform lives because his life was transformed. His life was changed. There in that very place he's saying, what I was before. I am no longer. He spoke respectfully in terms the people could understand. He, he addressed them as Stephen did more than 20 years before. Paul in verse 1 says, Brethren and fathers. In Acts 7 verse 2, when Stephen con is, is confronted, he says to them, Brethren and fathers, listen. So Paul made it clear that he was a fellow Jew, though born outside of Jerusalem in, in what was considered Jewishly liberal Tarsus, as it were. He was brought up in the religiously strict conservative confines of Jerusalem by that revered Rabbi Gamaliel, or Gamaliel, and strictly kept the law of Moses. Paul is saying, that was me back then. In fact, he had probably been more zealous than anyone in that crowd that he was addressing. You see, he was the one that led the persecutions against Christians, not they. Some 20 years before, he had received the letters to do so from the high priest, not they. 
Saul of Tarsus pursued Christians all the way to Damascus, not they. And in his letter to the Philippian church, Paul reveals some more of his own testimonies, some deeper thoughts, deeper things to let us know how deeply zealous and deeply Jewish he was. Uh, 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 Philippians 3, verses 3-7, through For we are the circumcision, he says, who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. The implication here is, of course, that when he lived in that state of, of zealousness as a Jew, he was, in fact, confident more in his flesh than in anything else. That's why he says in verse 4, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day. You almost have to think that Paul says, I remember that circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. In other words, I wasn't all talk. I was one who walked my zealousness. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul says, as far as I was concerned, I kept the whole law. But what things were gained to me in all of that, I have counted, these I have counted laws for Christ. If that had been gained, today all of that is loss for the knowledge of Christ. And in verse 4 of our text, getting back to chapter 22 of Acts, Paul stated, I persecuted this way to the death. That's how serious Paul was about this. It wasn't just a matter of imprisoning Jewish Christians. It was a matter of even for some of them being executed. From persecution to execution. I persecuted this way to the death. The way was as I said before, what they called the the Jewish Christians of his time. The word refers to a road that travelers take to arrive at their destination. Which way are you going? From which way did you come? It's not only something that's geographical, it is something that is spiritual as well both in what is good and what is bad. There are a lot of people walking a certain way today. That way is a way that leads to destruction and death. Jesus called it the broad way that leads to destruction. There's a narrow way that leads to life. And those who had come to know Jesus as their Messiah, they they said, that's the way that we're going to travel. That's the way we're going to walk to eternity. In Christ. On Christ. Why? Because Jesus Himself said, I am the way. The truth and the life. John 14, 6. I am the way. That is our path. Christians, that is your path. We don't walk more than one path. If we do, we better check our hearts. We're to walk one path, one way, one road. 
Isn't it interesting that it was on his way to Damascus that Paul found the way to heaven? And Jesus meets him there at the midday when the sun shines its brightest. And a light that was greater than the light of the sun shined on Paul. And it knocked him to the ground. Well, let's let him tell us. Verse 6. Now it happened, Paul says, as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me and I fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? Probably one of the best questions Paul ever asked. Who are you, Lord? And by the way, he says, Lord, showing fear. Eventually, proper fear. And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Paul was persecuting Jesus by persecuting his people. Why? Because his people were filled with Christ. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who, who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? Now we see that he bows. What shall I do? He knows who it is. Why? Because the voice identified himself. This is, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And he says, What shall I do, Lord? The Lord said to me, Arise, and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all things which are appointed for you to do. Please mark that little phrase, appointed for you to do. building up to something we need to, li- to learn and listen uh, to today. When you go to Damascus, you'll be told what things you're appointed to do. And since I could not see the glory of that light being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Now, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, records Paul's conversation three times. Uh, The initial conversion, of course, is in chapter 9. Here in chapter 22, it is recounted for a Hebrew audience. Later on in chapter 26, when you see Paul sharing again his testimony there, it will be told to a Gentile audience. But each time it is slightly different, although it is never contradictory. And uh, you see, that's how we sometimes tell stories. Not that we embellish, because we're not talking about embellishment. We're talking about empowerment today. But depending on the audience to whom we speak, there has to be that, uh, uh, you know, we'll tell a story, you know, from a a perspective, though it, it doesn't contradict. It just brings in certain things that are a little bit, in one telling would be a little bit different than another telling. Well, in other words, we'll emphasize something more than we emphasize in another story but not necessarily contradictory. So the understanding here is that the Lord empowered Paul with a wisdom to present his testimony dependent upon his listeners, whether individuals or an audience, whether Jew or Gentile. No problem here. We have to go through the same thing. We have to be discerning when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to be sensitive to whom we're speaking to in the sense that we want to make sure that we make clear the gospel of Jesus Christ to those listening. 
And so there in verse 12, the next verse, it says that a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him and then he said, The God of our fathers. Now listen carefully to what this Ananias is saying and how he is described and how he was described here. But Ananias says to Paul, the God of our fathers has chosen you. Take that little phrase and underline it. First appointed in the earlier verse and there chosen. The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know His will and see the just one and hear the voice of His mouth. By the way, that's our outline later, so you might want to mark that. Nothing to hide here for you. We'll come back to it. The, fathers have cho- uh, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know His will, see the just one, and hear the voice of His mouth. For you, Paul, will be witness, His witness, to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now when he says all men, what is he saying? To all men, Jew and Gentile. That's what it translates to. And of course we know that from a verse we read in Acts chapter 9. But it is in this passage here that we just read that we notice how Jewish his presentation and his, description, his descriptions were. He, he doesn't present Ananias as a Christian, but as a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews in Damascus. That's wisdom, folks. See, understand who he's speaking to. He knows who his crowd is. Ananias referred to God as the God of our fathers. Something that would not offend any Jew who was listening to what Paul was saying. Jesus is called the just one here, referring to the promised and prophesied Messiah in the Hebrew Scriptures. They would know that this Jesus who met Paul on the road to Damascus is being described by Paul as the just one. They would understand what he's saying. And they're listening. And they're not uh, interrupting. And uh, You can hear a pin drop as Paul is speaking. But let me interject another thought here. that It doesn't mean that Paul was sugarcoating his words. He was just using terminology that meant something to his listeners. And they understood what he was saying. (coughs) And it's important to know that Paul's affirmation came... Not from a Gentile, but it came from a Jew, Ananias. So take a good look at verse 14 once again. Ananias told Paul that God has chosen him to know his will, to see the just one and to hear the voice of God. Now, that is what we should do every day. Here's where we need to start connecting with what this testimony is saying. Here's where the application is for our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. Because what Ananias told Paul, (coughs) how God has chosen him to know his will, to see the just one, and to hear the voice of God, is what we should do every day. To know God's will, to see Jesus, and to hear the voice of God. How can we do that? The one question that a lot of Christians ask today is, how do I know the will of God?
Now, I'm going to be a little blunt here, but I'm going to say you know the will of God because you stay in God's Word and you pray and you seek the face of God and you open your ears to hear His voice. Kind of like what we just heard down in Isdell Paul. But there are countless books in Bible st- uh, stores, to the Bible bookstores today, that, that you know, they've they got the ten ways, the twelve ways, the seven ways, to understand the will of God. I'm, I'm sure they're helpful. But it doesn't matter how many, I, I have seen people read all those books and they still say, but I still don't know the will of God. So how can we do that? How can we know the will of God? How do we see the face of Jesus? How do we hear the voice of God? Well, Paul tells us, turn to Romans chapter 12. Turn to Romans chapter 12. You're not turning. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Want to hear it? You, those pages turning in your Bible should move my hair. The breeze from... So I'm growing my hair longer now. So I want to feel that breeze of your Bible turning here. Paul says in verse 1, I beseech you. Do you know what that means? It means I am pleading with you. I am begging you. Who's he speaking to? The church. Believers. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Folks, Christians aren't supposed to be dead. We're supposed to be alive and living sacrifices here. We're to offer ourselves, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, holy. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart for God and you know, set apart from the, from the things of the world and set apart for God. Holy. Acceptable to God. How are we acceptable to God but that we surrender ourselves to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And it's not that we're the ones being accepted. It is the the acceptance of the very fact that we accepted the truth of what Jesus did for us on the cross when He died for our sins and shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And that blood was shed for us and we believed in that. We're accepted by God. But it wasn't our work. Paul says to Timothy, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercies he has saved us. But we are still yet to be living sacrifices. We present our bodies as the living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. What does that mean? It means our worship. That is our worship. To present our bodies a living sacrifice, wholly and acceptable to God. That's our reasonable service of worship. Our time together here today is is corporately worshiping God in spirit and in truth. I hope that you already worshiped it in spirit when we lifted up our voices in praise to God in in, in praise. Now, here we are right now, worshiping God in His truth, in His Word. And do not be conformed to this world. Here's where we begin to understand how we get to the will of God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. The world is about conformity. Trends 
fads, things come and go, and people look at them and they say, oh, I like that. You know, we, we move, we conform to those things that we see. But God says, listen, I don't want you to conform to the world. I want you to trans- be transformed, completely changed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What is it that we're looking for? The will of God. So we have to die to ourselves and we have to live unto Christ. And let me say that the only caveat here, the, thing, the, the only warning that I have to give you about being a living sacrifice is that a living sacrifice on the altar before God is living enough to at some time also crawl off. Be careful of that. Every day be a living sacrifice for God. And may I encourage you once again, don't play games with God. Please. Don't play games with God. I'm not asking you that for my sake. I'm asking you that for your sake. As a matter of fact, I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. Let me clarify. I'm telling you, don't play games with God. Don't think that, oh, well, listen, you know, I, I can do this and that, and then I can just come in and just say, well, God, forgive me. And he does, and then I feel better, and then I'll go do it again. That's not holiness. That's folly. That's foolishness. Read the Proverbs. Read what it says about foolishness and then avoid it. Read what it says about being righteous and godly and do that. Give your life fully to God, in other words. Give your life fully to God. Be in His Word. Be in His Word. Seek His will and you will see Jesus. You will see Jesus. Maybe not with the eyes of flesh, but you will see Him with the eyes of the Spirit. You will see Jesus with the eyes of your heart. I am oftentimes blessed by the things that I see in your lives when I see that you're walking in the love of Christ. All of a sudden I said, man, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. I want to see that in you. I want want you to see it in me. It's not going to be seen if I'm not living in God's Word, and if I'm not letting the Word of God be lived out in me. Give your life fully to God. Folks, we we cannot live any longer, if Jesus is coming as soon as we believe He is, we cannot live any longer with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. We are so far apart, and we're supposed to be so far apart from the world, that we shouldn't even, you know, how far can our legs go? We can't do it. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. It's not about having your feet. It's about, ha- it's about having your feet on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, planted in Christ, grounded in Christ, you in Christ, and in Christ alone. That's what you should be doing. And that should affect every area of your life. Where you work, where you go to school, what you do at home. Even, you know, even our recreation. It's, it's okay to recreate. That's all right. We need that. We need rest, recreation. But we have to do it as, as believers, not as, you know, all of a sudden I just go to church, but then over there I can really, eh. Can't do that. Ooh, got to get going here. Give your life fully to God. Be in His Word. Seek His will. You will see Jesus. Turn to First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I'm, I'm going to kick it up in overdrive now because of time. I, I, just, I just had to drive this home, folks. 
First Peter 4, verse, verses 1 through 7. Peter says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. There it is again, living for the will of God. Arming ourselves with the mind of Christ. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. Hey folks, if this isn't what I've been trying to tell you, I don't know what it is. He says, we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. That's it. I'm not going back into the world to live like I did before. Paul, uh, Peter is saying, don't do that. He says, when we walked, and it, now he describes it, when we walked in lewdness, lust, those are, those are sexual thing, uh, sins, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Yeah, they speak evil of you when you don't join them in doing all that stuff anymore. Praise the Lord if they do. That's exactly what Peter is saying. And he says, They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they may be judged according to men in the flesh, but to live according to God in the Spirit. So then he says, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. So I'm trying to tell you, the end of all things is at hand. It's more at hand now than it was when Peter said this almost 2,000 years ago. It's, it's at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Are you being serious in your prayers? Are you being watchful and, and, and taking note of what's going on in the world today and praying according to that which you see? So may that be our heart's desire, to know His will, to see the just one, and to hear His voice. You won't be sorry, but you'll be blessed if you take the time to spend with the Lord. That's what I, that's what I pray for, for you. Take the time to be alone with God. Don't let it be like some, some exercise in futility. You know, some people think, well, here, I'm going to be alone with the Lord. And we get so jumpy and itchy, like, well, say something, God, please, because I've got to go to work. Or I've got to go out and mess around. You're messing around right there because you're not at peace with God. Maybe you better get right with God. Then you'll know the peace of God. I don't know your heart. God does. So folks, I'm not your judge, but God is. Do what's right. Let's get back to Paul. Okay, here's, here's overdrive, second overdrive. Verse 16. Well, let's, let's link it up to, to verse 15. You know. Ananias says, For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now, there are those who believe that this verse is a proof text for, for baptismal regeneration. I don't know if you've ever heard of that term. But baptismal, uh, baptismal regeneration is, is, a, is a doctrine that says that baptism is necessary for salvation. It's not a good doctrine and it's not a right doctrine. Nor in the Bible does it really say that you are to be baptized to be saved. Baptism is something that is done because you're saved. And you're giving the outward expression of what has taken place inward in your heart. 
So it isn't what the verse is saying. What's important here is that Ananias is not leading Paul to salvation and and telling him to do so by being baptized. In fact, Paul told the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, first revelation was in Acts 9. Jesus comes upon Paul, that great light, and he says, Paul, or Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is at this time that Paul's heart is converted to the Lord. And Ananias was in effect telling Paul to express his faith, really. Express your faith based on that calling that you received in the name of the Lord. Our sins are washed away by our calling on the Lord's name, not by the waters of baptism. How do we know that? Well, we know that because of a statement that Peter made in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Peter says there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Now, let me explain antitype, you know, just as simple as I can. A type in the, in the scriptures, because we talk about types in the scriptures. Let me just say Joshua in the Old Testament is a type of Jesus in the New. Joshua is a type of Christ in the way that he leads the children of Israel into the promised land, so on and so forth. That's, that's an example. An antitype would be Jesus looking back at, Paul, at, at, at Joshua. The antitype is Joshua. The type is Jesus. Well, well, I should say the type is, is Joshua is the type of Jesus. The antitype is Jesus of, of Joshua. Okay, so it's, it's that thought. So what he's saying is that baptism, you know, back then, you know, when, when we see the examples of, of the children of Israel crossing through the, uh, you know, the Red Sea uh, and the water and, and all of that, and, and these are types in the Old Testament, Baptism is the antitype. That's why he says there is also an antitype which now saves us. But now understand when he says saves us, he says baptism, but not the removal of the filth of the flesh, as if it's the water. It's not that. But it is the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, it isn't the baptism that saves us. It's the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans 10 makes it even more clear. Romans 10, verses 8 through 10. But what does it say, Paul says? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God is raised from the dead, you will be saved. There's no mention of baptism here. Verse 10. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse 13 of the same chapter says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is pretty clear evidence that baptismal regeneration is not a good doctrine. But if you want to even clarify it further, Acts 16. You go back to the the account of Paul and Silas in the Philippian prison, and there is a Philippian jailer there who gets all freaked out because all of a sudden there's this earthquake, and then you know everybody's running out, and Paul and Silas are still there and whatnot, and so they they share the uh, the gospel with him, and 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 so it, the jailer brings them out in verse 30 and says, "Sirs, what must I do to be saved?" Well, there's a pretty pointed question. What must I do to be saved? And, and, uh, and, and so they said to him, and I'm sure that Paul was the spokesman, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So no mention of baptism here. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty clear. So baptism doesn't save us, Jesus does. Baptism doesn't save us, Jesus does. Now, got to move on. So Ananias did tell Paul, the God of our fathers has chosen you. 
Now, Luke's telling makes it even clearer. Go back to Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. I know I'm giving you a lot of scriptures here, and time's running out, and we've got a lot to go. But just stay up with me. If you just want to follow, get the, get the CD later or whatever. But, but we need to you know, fly. Acts 9, verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer, suffer for my name's sake. Again, he is a chosen vessel. Now, what is that telling us? It's telling us that God had already determined Paul's work for the Lord. God had determined Paul's work for him, for the Lord. And for our sake, he has also determined our work for him. God has determined our work. Ephesians 2 verse 10. Paul says, for we are his workmanship. I'll tell you this, the thing that is made does not tell the one who makes him how to make him. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, we all fit into that category if we are believers in Jesus Christ. But notice, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not all doing the same thing, are we? Why? Because God has determined for you something and for me something and for someone else something else as the way to bring about these good works for His glory. Now remember this. The first two verses before this, verses 8 and 9, uh, for we are saved by grace through faith. We have been saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship. It is God who has saved us, it is God who determines for us what we do for Him. So the Lord didn't call us to predict what our works for Him might be by looking at our education or even our experience. This is one of the main points I want you to get. There certainly are times when the Lord does use what we may have learned experientially in the world and we now use for the Lord as believers, such as music, art, and other things. But our experience with the Lord will open many more doors and many other things for us to do. But when you think about it, in many cases, Bible characters had little or no qualifications. I mean... Let's take Moses. I mean, Moses did grow up in Egypt. Uh, God put him there because of what was taking place with the, with the slaves, the Jews at the time in Egypt. And he grew up in the courts of Egypt, but at a certain time he left. In fact, when he comes back to Egypt, God doesn't bring back some great prince of Egypt. He comes back as a shepherd. And then at the same time, Joshua, who will be the one to lead the children of Israel into the promised land is in Egypt as what? A slave. So, Bible characters had little or no qualifications. Peter, James, and John, fishermen. Matthew, tax collector. You know, it brings to mind a saying I've often used, God doesn't call the qualified, He qualifies the called. God doesn't call the qualified, He qualifies the called. The Lord doesn't need our qualifications, in other words. You see, at times they get in the way of His being glorified in us. And I've seen that happen too often in the church. People want the glory, and they, you know, they're gifted in things, but you can see the glory's not going to the Lord. Here's where the title of this message comes in. Empowered or empapered? <laughs> Let's see if we can make sense of it. Many denominations require 
a seminary degree or education to qualify as a minister. Well, it's sad that many men and women now, uh, and now women are, 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 who are qualified by their education were never really called by God. And you say, that's a pretty bold statement. Well, where can there be gifting or empowering if all you have is a piece of paper on a wall, but you're preaching heresy from pulpits? Because you learn those heresies in seminary. Whereas people today who may have all kinds of letters after their names with degrees on the wall, but they're saying, but you know what? I don't really believe that Jesus was born of a virgin or that, uh, or that He really died on the cross or even that He rose from the dead. But we're here today in this church and we have a cross behind us and all of that, but we don't really believe that. They're just good stories for us to teach, to encourage people. Well, that's heresy. I don't want to go to seminary to learn heresy. I want to get into God's Word and learn the truth. So, where's the empowering there? It's just a lot of empapering. Paper on the wall. Please understand that I'm not saying that there aren't blessed people, dedicated people, anointed people who have gone to seminary. There are. We've seen many of them on TV. We've, 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 blessed, we've been blessed by them. But the fact is, here it is. We know them by their fruit and their love for God's Word. We know them by their fruit and their love for God's Word. Listen, D.L. Moody was a shoe salesman in Boston when he was saved in 1855. What did he become? He became one of the greatest evangelists of the 19th century. Why? Because God gifted him and empowered him. D.L. Moody, after he became a Christian... Couldn't even get, uh, they wouldn't even let him become a member of a church. You can't go out and, you can't go out and evangelize here, you know. Uh, you got to come to school first. You know what D.L. Moody did? He went out and preached the gospel. Hundreds of thousands of people came to Christ. And then he started a school. He says, get your calling, and then you can teach others to do the same. It doesn't say, go to school first, and then you can minister. Who said that? You see, that's not the qualifications we see in the Scriptures. We need to let God direct our work for Him. We need to let God direct our work for Him. And this is what we see in the next section of our text. Because Paul continues on with his testimony here, verses 17 to 20. Now it happened, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance... You know, don't, don't start thinking that he was like... You know, it was as in those times of receiving things, sometimes dreams and visions from God. And saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. Now that's God speaking to Paul. And so, so Paul said to, to the Lord, verse 19, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprison and beat those who believe on you. They know who I am. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was standing by consenting to his death. And guarding the clothes of those who are killing me? I mean, they're going to see the great transformation that's happened in my life. And then, you know, so I'm, I'm here. I know that I'm supposed to... God is telling him, get out. Eventually, they have to get him out. Because Paul was, in fact, very zealous in preaching the gospel of Jesus. And the people were very zealous in killing him for it. So three years have taken place now since his conversion. He, he's once again in Jerusalem 
from his testimony. And, and there's, you know, there is that sense that Paul, in conversing with the Lord, considered himself as the best man for the job of staying in Jerusalem when the Lord is telling him to flee. Now, what else do we know about this? Well, there are others who believe that he's arguing with God. What does that bring to mind? Paul is human. Here's another human story of Paul. The Lord knew the Jews in Jerusalem would not receive Paul's testimony. But, Paul, but God had a plan for Paul. He had a, a whole other plan for him among the Gentiles. And here's just a, wor- a, a, a word of thought to, to consider. Paul thought he could reach his people intellectually. But the scriptures are clear. It isn't a matter of the intellect. It is a matter of the heart. And God knows hearts. So God says, Paul, get out. Those are the tough lessons that Paul had to learn from God. To the extent that he writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. What a hard lesson Paul had to learn. Well, so far so good now in his testimony. And as it pertained to Paul giving his testimony to the crowds of, of Jews who listened to him. But then, then, then came one word. Let's see if you can find the word. The one word. Then he said to me, verse 21. Paul's continuing his testimony. Then he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Oh, do you know which word? They gave it away. They listened to him. Until this word. The crowd listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and they said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he's not fit to live. And then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust in the air, that that must have been quite a scene. The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, "Uh, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. And the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. And the commander answered, well, with a large sum, I obtained citizenship. And Paul said, yeah, but I was born a citizen. And immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman because he had bound him the next day because he wanted to know for certain why he, uh, he was accused by the Jews. He released him from his bonds, commanded the chief priests and all the council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. We'll come back to some of this next week. But putting Gentiles, when they heard that word Gentile, just, just listen. Putting Gentiles on an equal footing before God infuriated the Jews. They went crazy when Paul said that Gentiles could be saved without keeping the law, the implication of course, without becoming a Jew. They were ready to kill Paul over this issue of Gentiles being saved. Uh, you know, many people today are offended that good people must be saved the same way the sinners are. 
You know, that's, that's a lot of the ways religious people look at things today. Well, I'm religious. I, you know, I go to church. I never miss church. I always give my little, my little pittance, you know, when it comes time. But, yeah, I do good things. I try to help out here and there. So don't be telling me that I need to be saved like sinners are. They want a gospel that will keep them separate from the riffraff of society. Well, this may be a good time for us to check our biases and our prejudices as well. Because those things have no place in the heart of a believer. You see, I wanted to focus today on spiritual empowerment and God's direction on our lives. Well, why then was the Jew reaching out to the Gentiles? If we were in charge of first century evangelism, we would, we would have, you see how smart we are? We would have sent a Gentile to reach the Gentiles. But we weren't in charge. And we're not in charge now. The fact is, we'll never be in charge. Why? Because God's in charge. God knows better. The Lord directs our work. Your lack of qualifications doesn't disqualify you, but neither do your qualifications necessarily qualify you. So that brings us back to those three things that Paul was given, that Paul was chosen for. Those three things. Let's, let's look at them again, if we will, very quickly. Paul was chosen for three things. He was chosen to know God's will. He was chosen to see Jesus. And he was chosen to hear his voice. The same applies to each and every one of us that are believers in Jesus Christ. Every one of us that are Christians. The same applies to us. So I'm going to give you a little test as we're going out today. Let me begin, first of all, with John 6, verses 28 and 29. This is kind of a, uh, just a foundation for you. They said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So God, everything has to believe, begin there, that you believe in him whom, whom, whom he sent. That you believe in the Lord, that you believe in Jesus, that you believe in the Messiah. All right, with that in mind... Paul says in Ephesians 5, 17 and 18. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That applies to the first point, doesn't it? I'm helping you here. See, I'm giving you a test, but I'm helping you. It's almost like an open book test. Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And it says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Very important, right? How are we going to understand the will of the Lord if we don't have the Spirit of God in us? Be filled with the Spirit. That applies to the will of the Lord. Secondly, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. We already read it. I'll read it again to you. But consider where this fits. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. <laughs> Well, it fits the will of God as well. And we talked about that already, being the living sacrifice, presenting ourselves before God. Here's another one, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Where does this fit? Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him like He is. 
And then lastly, Revelation 3.20. Jesus to the church at Laodicea, but to all churches, says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, you see the handle's on the inside. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Fellowship. Where was the church of Laodicea? They thought that they were rich and had need of nothing. And Jesus said, you're wearing the emperor's clothes. You're poor and you're blind and you're naked and you have no fellowship with me. So he says to a church, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Folks, we've been chosen by God, each and every one of us, to know the will of the Lord, to see Jesus, to hear His voice. We'll pick up with the rest of chapter 22 into chapter 23 next time. But is this where we are? Are we serious about knowing the will of the Lord? Are we serious about seeing Jesus? Are we serious about hearing His voice? There'll be a time when all that's gone. There'll be a time when we will hear that voice from, the, from Jeremiah. The summer is ended. The harvest is done. The summer is ended and we're not saved. We can't let that get to us. We've got to stay, stay focused on Jesus and live for Him. Let's pray.